Welcome to Animal Chat with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going great, mate. How are you? How the devil are you, Harry Ekman? I'm doing well. How have you found this last week after having been compared to Donald Trump, ivory poachers and terrorists? Has it impacted your life in any way? Has it made you question your your life choices, your career direction, well. your choice in friends? <laughs> My choice to well, you knew me well enough to know that I do not have any friends. Uh, that's the fact. <laughs> so, but what has happened is that my girlfriend now calls me toxic waste, which is what the call <laughs> referred to me as. So, in this in the household, I am so low in the pecking order that I am referred to as toxic waste. I mean, that's actually nicer than some of the things she calls me. So, um, thank you to the troll. Um, he's improved my life like that. Um, how about you? How how did the troll affect you emotionally, Harry? Um, I've been through the stages of grief, to be honest. Acceptance, mm. denial, anger, you're, you're frustration. Mi- you're missing the bots from Colombia, aren't you? I am missing the bots from <laughs> Colombia. No, Although, I mean, the, the bots were nice, but being compared to ivory poachers and terrorists yeah. and president of the United States yeah. is its own reward, I think. Yeah. The bots were nice, but they're not the sort of people you'd introduce to your mum, are they? Oh, I don't know. I saw the picture. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So um, anyway, Harry, guess what, mate? We put out for our ardent followers from Colombia to Bermuda to Sweden to Mexico, India, we put out a Facebook post this week asking people, well, Harry, I don't know about you, but you must have noticed in this lockdown, lots of people saying, send your top 10 albums or I nominate yes. you to share your top 10 photos of activism. I have got so many friends, even in a lockdown, I have not been fucking invited to a single one. Me neither. And I have to say, I have an opinion on all of these things. And if somebody were to ask me my favorite albums or my favorite films or the most influential cheese I've ever eaten, I think that I would have an opinion on those. But what I do find that I'm doing is judging everybody else's choices. (laughs) It's like, oh, really? That was your top album in 2012? Oh, I don't know if I'd have posted that. Makes me think very differently about you exactly anyway harry we digress what this week we asked our followers we wanted to join in with this on our facebook page we asked them what was the movie book event anything that inspired their love for animals or basically the wild and we had a really good response we did i want to say thank you to i'm going to try and say anna martinson who loved born free harry that's a good one isn't it it's a very good one. It's a very influential film for a lot of people. Yeah, Thank is. you very much, Anna, for that. Thank you very much. Uh, Sorrel. Sorrel, I've known for a while on Facebook. Um, she's awesome. And she put Babe the Pig. It's a really good film. And I also know a lot of people that, that changed the way people thought about farm animals. Mm. Eva Wonderlust said, Mine is Elephant Memories by Cynthia Moss. That is an amazing book. I've read that. Well done, Eva. It is. is that really her surname? Because if it is, that's a great surname. Yeah. Eva Wanderlust. That is an amazing surname. Thank you, Eva. And also, our guest from episode three got involved, Lola Weber, one and only. Her one fav- and only. The one and only. Her favourite was Gorillas in the Mist, which 
God, that film used to traumatise me when I was younger. Jesus Christ. An amazing film. Amazing Wonderful film. Diane Fossey. Diane Fossey, yeah. So what was yours, Harry? Which one did you go for, mate? Mine was actually a book called Dog Watching by Desmond Morris, who was famous for writing a book called The Naked Ape, which was looking at humans oh, yeah. from the point of view of seeing them as just another animal. But then in the early 80s, he wrote a book called Dog Watching, which was about dog behavior and understanding dog psychology and behavior. And for me, having always had a dog, I found it absolutely fascinating. It was the first book that I bought that took me in a different direction in considering animals and thinking about the world from their point of view. So for me, it was a really, really influential book that inspired me to think about animals in a completely different way when I was about 13 or 14, I think. What about you, Matt? What what was yours? First of all, you clearly thought the naked ape was something else, didn't you? Have you seen a naked ape? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. So, so what was yours, Matt? Well, actually, I shared um, Jaguar by Alan Rabinovitz, one of, if not the best book that I think has ever been written to do with wildlife conservation or anything. It is incredible. But when I was younger, one of the most moving films that I watched was Free Willy. Wow, what an amazing segue that was. <laughs> that will only become apparent when I ask you the next question. Ask away, Harry. So, Matt, who's our uh, who's our podcast guest this week? Well, I'm glad you asked me, Harry, because our guest today is the executive director of the Whale Sanctuary Project, none other than Mr. Charles Vinnick. Now, Charles, this is almost part of a, a double header, really. We spoke to Laurie Marino in episode five, Charles works really closely with her at the Whale Sanctuary Project. It's really difficult to explain how we're so lucky, Harry, through this, aren't we, to to speak to so many amazing people. We are. And this conversation with Charles, we could have talked to him for hours. He talks to us about his 25 years he spent with Jean-Michel and Jacques Cousteau, how he ended up working with them. And it's an amazing, remarkable story. He then ends up being involved in the rescue and reintroduction or rehabilitation, really, of Keiko, the killer whale or orca, who was the star from the Free Willy movies. Ah, um, see what you did there. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, mate. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. I am, I'm on this podcasting business. <laughs> and then, basically, he went on to become a CEO of so many companies, particularly environmental technology companies. He's just such an amazing human being. It was just a joy to speak to him. It was. It was a fabulous podcast. He was so engaging and engrossing. I almost forgot to ask him questions at some points because it was just so fascinating listening to him tell his story. So what do you think, Matt? I think we should just... Yep, let's get stuck in. Episode 7, Animal Chat with Charles Vinnick. was the inspiration behind you going down both getting into animal welfare and also why cetaceans in particular? Well, in many respects for me, it really does go back to the early days of meeting the Cousteau family and beginning to work with Jacques Cousteau and Jean-Michel Cousteau. 
Now, that's kind of a dream job. Everyone asks, how do you get a job with Cousteau? And once I was managing all of their work around the world, the number of people who would reach out with an email or a phone call or a letter saying, you know, how do you, I want to work with Cousteau. And in my case, it was pure happenstance. I was a professor at the University of Southern California running the adult ed program. And Jean-Michel came into my office with a colleague one day and wanted the university to sponsor some of their field work in the way of providing what in those early days before you were born, they called continuing education units. And that was a function of the part of the university that I ran. And we agreed and he and I became close friends. And through a tragedy, actually the death of Philippe Cousteau, Jean-Michel's younger brother, the family asked if I would come in and take over the logistics and management that Jean-Michel had been doing. And he moved more into the camera work and in front of the camera work with his father that his younger brother had been doing. And that really launched a completely different career for me, because how do you say no to Cousteau when they say, hey, come join us? And I was ecstatic to do that. And that was in the mid-70s. So that enabled me to have an opportunity to travel the world on Calypso and in advance of Calypso for all of those films, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, The Cousteau Odyssey, and then the 90 films we made called The Rediscovery of the World. And I would often advance the ship and advance the film crew. And I spent my life actually running between our office in New York, our office in Norfolk, Virginia, our office in Los Angeles, where I was based, and our office in Paris, and two ships at sea. So that gave me an opportunity to experience the marine environment, the ocean environment, in ways I didn't have the training to do, and I had never done before. But I learned from them, I learned from the masters, and I had opportunities that are just remarkably special. Uh, in going around the world and experiencing various things in the marine environment. And one of those experiences led me to cetaceans and to an affinity for them that then continued for many years. What was that experience, Charles? Because the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, it's one of the things my wife often talks about, and she's obviously not alone. It was such a, for anybody that loves the oceans and is of a certain age, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau is one of those defining pieces of television and, and exploration into the oceans. It really was quite influential. But what was that experience that led you to cetaceans? So the, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was the first really 36 hours of television that really launched his career. And I came into his work and his family's work at the very end of that process. And actually where the Cousteau Odyssey, the PBS series was being produced. And one of the early expeditions that I was involved in was in Australia. We had planned to go to Australia. We now had two ships, both Calypso and Alcyon, which was a wind-powered ship that we were demonstrating the ability to use a sail technology without sails to save fuel and the like. And that ship was in Australia. And I was there for a week a month trying to find funding and advance the film series before we got there. And in one of those trips, I was on the Gold Coast and was at a marine park. 
And because I was the Cousteau guy, I went in and introduced myself before the show and the uh, animal caregivers, the trainers invited me down to the tank where they had two pseudorcas. They're orcas, but from the Southern hemisphere, a little different species. And they invited me into the tank. They showed me the signals that they give the whales for various tricks. And then I did them. And with their whistle and my doing the hand signal and foot signals, one of the whales came up under me and threw me up in the air for a dive. And then after that, I rode two of them across the tank, across the pool, as though I was water skiing on the backs of these two pseudorcas. And so that was a just, you know, a joyful experience. I mean, who gets to do that? And so I was quite elated. And then I went into the audience to watch the actual show. And what struck me then was, what had I done? Here I am, the guy representing the Cousteau family, environmentalists known throughout the world. And I am their representative. And what I'd done felt completely wrong. Watching the animals, seeing that, in fact, they're doing tricks for food. They're rewarded. This is reward and response in every sense of the word. And I felt troubled by it for quite a long time. I didn't act on it immediately. I didn't change what I did the following day, although I certainly never went to another show. And I certainly never did any of those acts in the pool with them again. But it stayed with me throughout my whole life to this day, that experience. So it had that power, that meaning, and that intensity of feeling at the time. And that's quite poignant for an emotion to stay with you that many years because you've experienced something that you know kind of intrinsically doesn't make sense. It's just wrong. Yeah, I understand that completely. I'd mentioned this previously, but last year I did some an undercover investigation on a dolphinarium here in Portugal and went there to just video and photograph what was taking place. And I was sitting in the audience, as, as you've described, I'm watching these dolphins and there's definitely this, if you, if you let yourself forget what you're seeing and the exploitation that's taking place, there is something about watching the keepers and the carers and the trainers and the interaction that they have with these animals is something really profound. I mean, to be that close to an animal like that, to have that kind of interaction relationship. If you allow yourself, it's very easy to get lost in the incredible beauty of that and the rare opportunity to be able to do that. But then when you take that step back and you look and you see what that actually involves and what that means and how these animals are actually being compromised in such a profound way, it's a very difficult thing to be able to accept. And you mentioned, uh, I remember listening to your TED talk and you mentioned the phrase of anti-education when you talk about captivity. And when these marine parks use these shows as an education tool, what it, what it actually is, is anti-education. And so what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true, because one of the main arguments, if you will, that the marine parks make is that they are providing education to children and adults throughout the world. And it's through that education that our love of these animals comes. And in fact, it is the case that they are introducing people to, in the case of what we're talking about, to cetaceans. 
But what they're showing children and what children come away with is that it's okay for us to dominate another species, that we tell them what to do, and they do in response to the reward system we create, behaviors that in fact are in the main not natural. And in order to do it, we have broken up families, we've brought young whales in, we've separated families so that there can be a variety of genetics around different parks. We move or they move small animals off to a different park. And we break up what is such a remarkable natural process for these animals in the wild. And as Lori so well points out, they suffer stress. From that stress, they have diseases that are not seen in the wild. They live much shorter lives and they have a compromised way of life that in fact is something we as humans have given them or required of them. And to me, that's a completely anti-educational message. And so I think we have learned a lot. I mean, there's none of the animal trainers I've ever met have anything but love for the animals in their care. And they care deeply about them. They have developed a bond with them that is very, very special. The animals do depend on them, and that's somewhat where the bond comes from, but it's more than that. So that's not the case that we're pointing a finger at the captive industry or at the individuals who are training the animals or care for them, because when you're pointing a finger at someone, there are always three pointing back at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is not something that they are wrong and they're bad people. No. We as a species, we as a human species are evolving. And this is something that is in our past, but it doesn't have to be part of our future because now we know better and we have other tools and techniques to introduce people to these animals. We now have underwater cameras. When I first went in a marine park, there was no whale watching anywhere. There were no whale watchers. Then whale watching came up. Now we even worry about the volume of whale watching interfering with the habits and transitions and the swimming and the migration of whales because it's become so prominent. And that's partly because there are just so many of us and we seem to overwhelm anything we greatly enjoy. So we do have to exercise caution. We have to exercise discipline on ourselves because we have overrun nature. And so even with whale watching now, we have to look at that as something that has become more intrusive than it should be. And we need to move on. I tell the story of a woman in Washington state who has developed whale watching from shore. And she has the whale trail throughout Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, and up into Southern Canada that she has pointed out where people can see whales from shore. Well, that's remarkably innovative. And so as we evolve, we can move on from each of the things that impact nature and impact cetaceans in ways that harm their way of life. Won't surprise you, Charles, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think, I don't know if you agree, Charles, but I can't think of another area. Going back to the the story you shared of your experience, 
I can't think of another area in animal welfare, wildlife conservation, where there have been so many people who have gone on such a journey compared to cetaceans in captivity. Obviously, if you think about yourself, you think about Jeffrey Ventry, Sam Berg, um, John Hargrove, uh, Laurie herself, so many people who have studied orcas or been trainers with orcas in captivity or dolphins or any other cetacean. And then, as you said, as time goes on and we've learned more due to the science, are now on the almost opposite end of the boxing ring, um, fighting a different corner now to trying to share their experiences. I, I don't know about you, but I can't think of another area where it's been so common that people have made that transition. Well, I, I think you're right. And I think it's partly because marine parks are so prominent and the animals that are in them get such public attention. But it, the actual transition that you've just described I don't think is as unusual as we might think. Think about shark hunters. Sharks have been hunted for decades, and yet today some of the most ardent shark protectors are those former hunters, even those who have been bitten by sharks. Yeah. And so I think as people get involved with animals in nature and they see them as something different than a thing, they see their family life, or they see how they care for their young. They see the way they maneuver and just flow, not only through water, but through land, the grace of the wild animal. Then we can't help but want to protect it and in some ways leave it alone. And I think it's, we know it, we work, uh, and I'm privileged to work with cetaceans. But in fact, I think this happens in the animal kingdom more widely as well. Yeah, I think you're right, actually, um, Charles, more I reflect on it. There's so many examples of people who used to be in the uh, tiger body part trade or the rhino horn trade who now work for organizations that try and track other hunters, for example. So yeah, you're completely right. It is more widespread in a, in a sort of different form, I suppose. So in terms of from that journey where you were working with the very famous Cousteau family. How did you end up from there to being involved in the rehabilitation of quite possibly one of the most famous animals uh, in the world at the time and um, in history, Free Willy or Keiko? Yes, well, that, that actually is part of the same experience and journey. Uh, I was the kind of general manager of the Cousteau family operations, the Cousteau Society, a nonprofit organization. And Jean-Michel and myself started what's called Ocean Futures Society uh, here in Santa Barbara. And when the office of the Cousteau Society in Los Angeles was closed for various economic reasons and the like, and he was on the board, Jean-Michel was asked to be on the board of what was called the Free Willy Keiko Foundation. So that started shortly after the film Free Willy was made. And what occurred was that that film was basically shot at a marine park in Mexico City. So there was Keiko, Free Willy, in this small tank in Mexico City in artificial salt water, a very small tank that was shallower than he is long. And so he couldn't really dive. His dorsal fin had already begun the classic droop that you see in many males in uh, marine parks. 
and he was also suffering from a papilloma virus. So he had all kinds of what we might call boils on his skin around his pectoral fins. And um, he was suffering. And an article was written in, I think it was Life magazine at the time, about him and his condition. And the film was out. And millions of people saw that article around the world and thousands of children started writing letters that Keiko needs to be saved. And the film is a lie. He's not free. He's still in the tank. And that affected Warner Brothers that had made the film a lot. And the Humane Society of the U.S. and Warner Brothers each committed funds to try to do something to save Keiko's life because he was really in very compromised health. And then Earth Island Institute founded the Free Willy Keiko Foundation with funds from Warner Brothers, from Humane Society of the U.S. and others. And Craig McCaw, who is a U.S. industrialist, if you will, started a number of companies, including a very successful cellular phone company became the primary benefactor of that work. And he committed to providing funds that others couldn't provide if necessary. And he ended up providing the great percentage of the funds to first build a tank in Oregon, an aquarium tank, multiple times the size of the tank that Keiko was in in Mexico City with natural salt water, greater depth, and a team of people who would care for Keiko. And Keiko was flown from Mexico City to Oregon and spent two years in this tank. He gained more than 2,000 pounds in weight. He grew longer, stronger, and over time, all of the physical ailments that he had were overcome. And then the effort was decided that they should try to rehabilitate him in his home waters of Iceland, where he had been captured more than 20 years before. And the team began to acquire a place in Iceland, in Kletsvik Bay, and build a facility, initially a bay pen that he could live in. And the plan would be to see if his family could be found or if he would join other whales. And it was at that moment, just prior to the transport to Iceland, that Greg McCaw asked Jean-Michel and myself if we would join the group with Jean-Michel having been on the board of directors of this Free Willy Keiko Foundation. But if we would merge that Free Willy Keiko organization with Jean-Michel's nonprofit, and we would together try to move this project forward. And the request of Craig was if I would manage that effort in Iceland. So, of course, I said yes. And uh, I was then privileged to join the group of people that had already been doing the hard work, the animal care, the training, the veterinary health. And I was coming in not for those skills because those are not my skills. I came in as a manager, as someone to manage that enterprise because it was fairly complex. We had two teams of people so that people would be in Iceland on 30-day rotations, and you'd be there 30 days on, 30 days off. We had to find housing for them. We had to find all the facilities that we would need. And people assumed that, frankly, this could be a fairly short process. Keiko would find his family out in the wild, 
or other whales that he would immediately adapt to, and in short order, he would be a wild whale. But in fact, this had never been done, and that was not the case. So we learned over a long period of time that each of the things that the literature talked about, the idea of, well, you take a whale for a walk, and you take him for a walk out to meet wild whales. Well, how do you do that? And people like Jeff Foster and the team figured that out. And they used many of the same techniques of training that were used and are used in marine parks to, first of all, teach Keiko to go on long distance swims. He was used to swimming around in a circle, but a wild whale goes 100 miles a day. So we had to do marathon training and you start that in a small bay. And so we netted off the bay and gave him space outside the bay pen, first into the bay. And then after that, we put a gate in the net across the bay. And over time, he said, yeah, I'll go through the gate. But the first time he saw the gate, he was very timid to go through that. Then he joined the boat and we would go on, as I say, marathon swims of tens of miles. Got him up to 100 miles a day. So he had the robust strength of a wild whale. But initially, when he would be near wild whales, wild orca, he uh, had no interest, and they often had no interest in him. And so as we talk about, and as you've heard in some of the other, my TED Talk and the like, you know, we would be out there for hours at a time looking for wild whales. And they're hard to see in the open ocean. So this became a very complex operation. The only time that anyone has tried to really reintroduce a whale to the wild. And the word reintroduce is critical. It's not about releasing a whale. These animals, orcas, live in a family. They cannot possibly catch the 100, 125 or more pounds of fish a day individually that they need to survive. But as a family unit, the family can corral many, many more times that amount of fish, and they all eat together. So he has to be reintroduced to a family, to a pod that accepts him and that he accepts in order to be rehabilitated as a wild whale. And we had the privilege of spending more than four years in Iceland, working with him during the summer months and then being back in the bay for the winter when the winters were very severe, waiting for the next summer to start again. And every summer, the first day out, he was as interested as he had become at the end of the previous summer. So he always was making progress, but it was slow. And he never fully integrated with a wild pod. So I had you know, a remarkable privilege to work with very talented people, animal caregivers, trainers, and others, marine operations people. And I was the manager of that. I, I didn't have the skills that they had, but I had the skills to try to hold that together, to move it forward in ways that you, you deal with just like you do in any remote environment. There are always struggles, there are problems, and the problems are human problems. The whale's fairly predictable, but we as a species have a difficult time some of the time, and that's the work of the manager. As you were speaking there, Charles, I was absolutely desperate to jump in to ask you that I can imagine, well, I can't imagine the pressure that must have been on you during that time from both the what we you know we can turn we can turn the anti-captivity industry to make a success of Keiko's reintroduction 
and the captive industry that I can imagine were looking for any slip up or any justification to show that it didn't work. Did you feel that pressure at all, you and the team? Yes, I think we always felt that pressure. And first, the pressure that is, I think we felt most strongly was the pressure we put on ourselves. And that was the pressure that we believed so strongly that Keiko needed to be free. He needed to be in the open ocean with wild whales. And that was our complete focus. We were not thinking that he should be in this bay as a sanctuary for him permanently. We always saw it as temporary. So in many respects, you know, we had people whose families were all over the world and the individuals would leave their family and come for their 30. And then I tried to expand it to 60 days on and 30 days off. And that was a little tough, but we went to 45 days on and 30 days off. And over time, you know, this was a very expensive proposition. We had three boats we found we couldn't find wild whales very easily in the open ocean. So we'd have our boats 10 miles offshore and they would radio that wild whales are there. We'd start out with Keiko with another boat. And by the time we get to where the wild whales were, they're gone. So it's a pretty complex operation. And Craig provided a helicopter so that we could scout for whales. And that changed the game completely. And so as we got different tools, we were more effective, but those tools were expensive. So the pressure we put on ourselves that this should be temporary and the solution should be immediate was very strong. And of course, the outside pressure, the media, the various stakeholders, if you will, on all sides of the animal care and animal rights equation all had opinions. And everybody, I think, thinks that they might know better. But the people who were on the front lines were very dedicated, working day and night in very, very difficult conditions. We had 100-knot winds in the bay on a regular basis. We had high seas. We had our equipment destroyed by storms. We had certainly the normal illnesses that people would have. We lost equipment. We had to find new equipment. So all of those are the day-to-day details, but it's held together by the belief that you're doing something that's really meaningful and important, no matter how difficult it is. And I think as everyone knows, the end of the story is that in the summer of 2002, in a big storm, I elected to bring all the boats in and the storm was too severe. Keiko was out on his own, had been on his own near but not integrated with a very large group of orca that were feeding on herring around the islands. And he stayed with them. Uh, And that was on a Friday night. By the following Sunday, we were able to track him with his radio tag and his satellite tag. And he had begun to swim really to the east from the islands that we were in, the Westman Islands. And so we got a plane and we went out to look for him and we could hear him on the satellite on the radio tag, and every morning we would get a satellite fix as to where he was, and it was clear that he was on a path toward Norway. And over the course of the next three weeks, he swam to Norway. We know he left Iceland with wild whales, but even though I was able to go to various islands, get other equipment, get planes, we never got a visual contact on him, although we frequently could hear him on the radio tag and we got a daily read of his satellite location. 
we knew he was diving to great depths. He was diving by satellite information down as much as 300 feet. He wouldn't do that except for feeding. We had taught him to dive. So we knew that he was probably with whales and feeding with them on that journey. He got close to Norway, and by then the media knew that he was coming. The word that Keiko was swimming to Norway was out on the press, and he was recognized by a family fishing boat. They threw him some fish, and he followed them home up a fjord, and that was in kind of the late summer of 2002. And in short orders, people, it was still summertime, people were jumping in the water, and in 30 hours, really one day, we were able to get the Norway government to pass a law, a regulation that people couldn't swim with him. And we sent some of our team members there to take care of him. And they did measurements. He hadn't lost any weight over the six weeks then that he'd been in the wild, six or seven weeks. So indications were that he was feeding on his own. He was doing all those things. But here in the fjord where he was, there were no wild whales. There was no herring. So our team began to feed him again. And he never was enclosed in any way in that fjord. And for the next year and a half, he was there and he was able to come and go as he wanted. And he had caregivers, but he really wasn't with wild whales. He was in a fjord. And he later in the winter of 2003, he caught a virus, if you will, which he had frequently in the winter months, he would get colds and viruses like other whales do, particularly in captivity. And he succumbed to uh, that virus. And he, at that point in the winter of 2003, was the oldest male whale ever in captivity. And for me, it is a story of the fact that we've known forever, if you will, how easy it is to capture a whale. But what we learned is how hard it is to put one back. And for me, that experience has informed and educated everything I've done since and it informs the strategy with which we are creating the whale sanctuary today. One of the things that I find most incredible is certainly the perseverance and belief of doing that because it was absolutely the right thing to do and having so much support to do that. But also the fact that I imagine so many people were following that and there was so much expectation around that. I mean, Free Willy came out in 1993 and that first venture completely on his own with the pod and his journey to Norway was in 2002. So from the point that the film came out and this became a thing to the point where he was as free as he was able to be was a nine-year process. Just such incredible dedication for that to take place. But what an amazing feeling that must have been to have finally gotten to a point where this became what it had always intended to be, despite the issues and despite the enormous amount of learning and the realization of the problems at every step of the way and this whole reintroduction, that success must have been quite something, quite profound. Well, I think what's, what it shows and what the success truly was and is today is that Keiko was given the highest quality of life of any captive whale at the time and since. We provided him quality of life. Now, were we successful in having him join a pod and go free? No, we weren't. And so one has to really understand the whole story. There are things that we were able to do as a team. And I, you know, it's the team. It wasn't me. It's the team that did all of that hard work. And 
they were able to do things and provide him quality of life, strength and health, vibrancy. If when you could see that whale on his own swim across the bay chasing birds, you can't help but smile and laugh. When you'd be out with a boat and he comes up behind you and there, you know, the picture of me we use on the website where he comes up and it looks like he's kind of resting his head on my shoulder and we're probably going along at four or five knots and he's just swimming right with us, just coming up for a breath every time. Those experiences are remarkably special and they show the quality of strength and life that he attained. That's the success of the story. So no, can we really put these animals back? The odds are very, very slim. Almost all whales in captivity now, all orca, have been born in captivity. Those that are wild, we don't necessarily know their families. There are two whales that's families we know, Corky at SeaWorld in San Diego. We know Corky's family of the northern resident pods, and we know what is the whale known as Walita in Miami Sea Aquarium of the southern residents. Both of their families are known, but both of those whales are over 50 years old. Are they really candidates for release? Mm, don't know. What would be the impact on their family if it was trying to take care of an aging whale that hadn't been in the wild for 45, 48 years? And what would be the impact on the individuals as well? But beyond those two, we know so little about any of the whales in terms of their where they could be accepted in the wild. So that's why sanctuary is such an important concept, because we can provide them as close as possible, an environment that is similar to their natural environment. Give them size, give them depth, give them an environment where they can interact with critters on the bottom, birds on the surface, waves in their face in ways they can never have in a concrete tank. No reverberation of sound from an artificial concrete barrier. All of those things we can provide and give them quality of life and they deserve it. They have made millions of people joyful by seeing them do tricks. They've entertained millions and millions of people, and they have made tens of millions of dollars for the people who hold them. We owe these animals something back, and we now have the capacity and the ability to give it to them. February was a big month for whale sanctuary because you have the first site for the first whale sanctuary in Nova Scotia. And so how long did it take to locate this site that's now going to be the first whale sanctuary? And what's the process to turning it into this sanctuary? It really was probably, as, as Lori pointed out, you know, this began in 2015, incorporated as an entity nonprofit in 2016. But I think the real field work, if you will, which is your question, about two and a half years, mid-2017 into the early part of 2020, we looked at over 130 sites in Washington State, British Columbia, and Nova Scotia, even had Maine on the table in the beginning, and then narrowed that down to probably 30 or more sites that we did field due diligence, field research about, looking for not only the physical characteristics that we needed of size and space and water transfer, uh, depth, purity of, of the environment and the like, 
uh, ability to find a spot that we would not be impinging upon the livelihoods and the other uses of the water space that would be the sanctuary. And in addition, finding a community that embraced the concept and wanted to join with us in doing it. And that's what we have found in the, on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia with Port Hilford and Sherbrooke, the Port Hilford Bay area, uh, Indian Harbor there, and the community of Sherbrooke in the St. Mary's municipality. Just a tremendous group of people that run around now with signs on their, you know, little buttons that say belugas belong here. They have roadside stands that talk about the sanctuary. All of these things they did with no impetus from us. They just took it upon themselves to adopt us and the concept in a way that is exactly what we need. Because this isn't something we will do alone. This isn't like coming to build a shopping center or something like that, a commercial enterprise. This is a nonprofit mission that will last for the lives of these animals. So we have to be prepared for something that's 35 and 50 years of work ahead. And the community is up for it. We couldn't be more excited. What was the process, Charles, in terms of getting the community on board? What work did you do? Because a lot of projects, I think, sometimes uh, can be found guilty of steamrolling into communities and, and thinking they know better because they have a moral or an ethical viewpoint. What, what did the Wales Sanctuary Project team do in Nova Scotia in particular that helped build this amazing community rapport that the project now has? Well, starting in the early part of 2019, we started a campaign of doing community meetings, both on the west coast of the U.S. in Washington State and in Nova Scotia. And basically, we went town to town and we did, I think, seven community meetings along the south shore and the eastern shore along the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia, uh, telling our story with Laurie and myself and others, Catherine Kinsman from Nova Scotia joining in, basically telling what we think a sanctuary is and why it's so important, both the science, the emotion, and everything that goes with those two, and why we thought it was so important. And we asked the communities that if they think this is a good idea, to help us find sites that they think we should look at to do it. So we didn't go to them and say, we'd like to do this in X Bay. We said, can you recommend somewhere we should look at that has the following criteria? Roughly 40 hectares or 100 acres of, of water space, 12 to 15 meters of depth, good flow, and an area that people would find this acceptable. And the communities came back to us with recommendations that they thought we should look at. So out of the seven or eight communities where we did these meetings, three communities particularly came forward with seven or eight or nine different harbors and bays we should look at. For one of the communities, it was too shallow and none of their area had the depth that we needed and they were a little too exposed. Another community, there was some good sites, but much more complication in terms of how much of the space was actively used for fishing and therefore potential impacts on the livelihoods of the fishing community. And out of that process came this site in Port Hilford with the people of Sherbrooke. So it became something that they brought to us rather than anything we might try to impose on a community, which is something we couldn't do. 
And that's the process that led to where we are today. That's very special. What's the um, capacity going to be of this first sanctuary? And how will you choose the whales? How, what's the process for, for deciding on which whales are going to end up there? Well, in terms of capacity, I mean, we had done from the beginning, we did a master plan of what a sanctuary would look like, what it would cost, what its components are. We had architects and designers involved in that process to create a master plan. And part of that is looking at if you're talking about 100 acres of water space, what's the carrying capacity of that space? How many whales could you put there and have no negative impact on the environment, on the terrestrial and marine environment? What's the appropriate amount of space for the whales and the like? And through that process with our scientists and advisors, we have been saying that 100 acres is roughly appropriate for five to eight belugas or a similar number of orca. And so that's the plan. Now that we have the site, we are going through all that same environmental analysis to assess the carrying capacity of this specific site. So we think it's the same number, five to eight whales, but we don't know that until we're further along with this environmental review and our permitting. But that's the objective. And you wouldn't bring them all at once. They would come in, certainly not alone. They come with a companion animal. So coming in twos or threes. And unlike other ideas that people may have, this isn't something we will do alone. It's not like we're going in the stealth of the night to find a whale. This has to be done hand in hand with what I would call future partners in the captive industry. Those marine parks that think moving some or all of their animals to a sanctuary is the right thing to do and join with us in doing it, that's how the whales will be selected. So we are opening channels of communication with marine parks. We have them in order to have these conversations. And again, I go back to that. You don't point your finger without knowing that three are pointing back. This is not against the marine parks. This is to take the next step with them and do it hand in hand to create and demonstrate that the quality of life of these animals will be enhanced in our model sanctuary. And then other people around the world and hopefully marine parks will join in creating them elsewhere. And that's how we make the full transition. And we are not alone. The National Aquarium in Baltimore has made the commitment to create a sanctuary for their dolphin in the Caribbean because they're warm water dolphin. And that's underway to find a site and move that forward. Merlin Entertainment made the commitment when they purchased a marine park in China that the belugas there would be moved to a sanctuary and they have adopted Quetzvik Bay, the same bay that we had for Keiko in Iceland. And they have moved the two remaining belugas from that park to a shore tank facility in Vesmanair, the island where we were, adjacent to Klutzvik Bay. And they say this spring, those two beluga will be moved into a netted off area in Klutzvik Bay as a sanctuary for their two animals. So that's an example of two organizations that have whales creating sanctuary. We're creating sanctuary more broadly. We're doing this in a different way because we are not a marine park. 
but we are looking to partner with them and to be able to say to the captive industry that yes, there is another alternative. Let's do it together. Bring your whales. We will commit to caring for them for the rest of their lives. So Charles, that is such a powerful argument and uh, it's hard not to hide my extreme bias in this um, to say that it really is an inspiring project and a really exciting moment in terms of when you consider the fight that so many people like yourself and others have been fighting for so long to be in a position where we're talking about zoos, aquariums, institutions, making the decision for themselves to provide homes and to provide sanctuaries for their captive uh, cetaceans. But I really wanted to ask you a question that I asked Laurie, and this is not my point of view, again, to stress. When we were talking about alternatives there, what is the argument against euthanasia for these animals? So what I mean by that is what is the argument against looking at the welfare and thinking, okay, well, actually, is the best thing for that animal, for these animals that have lived in captivity all their lives, what is the argument against euthanasia for them? What is the argument against euthanasia in prisons for people? And now moving on to the next question. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I say that in complete respect. We, we do not have that right. There are certainly examples of cetaceans committing suicide in parks, running their heads full speed into a concrete wall. That has happened. We know that has happened. But in the main, we and other animals have, that have been in various forms of captive situations choose life. And these animals certainly are owed much more than that. And so as long as we as a species have the capacity and the will and the heart to do right by them, that is what we should do. I couldn't agree more. And we don't have the ability to ask them. So we're always making a leap in our intellectual understanding of what's best. But you know, when you look at children and when you, when you talk to young children about what's best for an animal, before we have educated them in other ways, they almost always have the right answers. They're born with that heart and that expansive emotion of acceptance. And so I think we look to kids for the right answers and we try to do the best we can, but we cannot make a decision of life and death on behalf of an animal that isn't so compromised that it's a health decision. It's such an important thing in welfare to not have this binary view that if we can't attain perfection for an animal, then we shouldn't try at all because it's all about just doing as much as we can for the animal and making as good a life as possible because as the saying goes, perfection can't be the enemy of good. And if we want to provide as good an environment as possible, we have the means to do that and therefore we should. Well, it's no different than what we're each doing in our own lives. I mean, we we certainly don't attain perfection. We're barely able, you know, we're barely scraping by with with almost. So, um, you know, we we shouldn't look at it any differently. What you know, you get up every morning and you do the best you can, and every morning you do it again, and that is, I think, in many respects, the human condition. 
but it's also what inspires us. It's what gives us energy. And some of us, myself, Lori, are truly blessed and privileged to be able to do this kind of work. And, uh, you know, it's not work. You know, who, who calls this a job? Yes, you have to find the money to do it. You have to always, all the details are real. And, you know, as the management guy, that's the stuff I end up often dealing with. And I'm privileged to do this kind of management work. Could be something else, but this is what I've been able and blessed to do. So I couldn't be happier about trying. And yes, it's frustrating. You hit brick walls all the time. You're always looking for more money. I mean, it, it comes down to it in every endeavor of this nature, but it's very special to be able to participate with all the people who are doing this so well. You've named many of them, Matthew. You know, Naomi, who's been doing this for decades, certainly Lori's work in science, Jeff Foster's work in the field and elsewhere, and so many others. It's a, a really special opportunity to work with people who are this dedicated, who have this level of expertise, and are committed to carrying it forward. For people that aren't working directly in welfare, but obviously care as passionately about these issues as we do, who are lucky enough to be in a position to actually have this as our, our livelihoods and our passions. But there are people out there who care about this. And what can they do? There's still 3,000 dolphins and whales in captivity around the world. These marine parks exist. There are businesses that are going on around this. So what can people do to make that change, to push this along? Well, I think the, the most important thing that we and they can do is to share the view that change is important, that change is possible. That's what's important here, that we want to bring about change. We want to change the way we relate to animals, and we want to change the way we relate to whales. It's already happened for elephants. It's happened for some of the big cats. It's not all perfect, but now it is the time for whales, and we want to share that information broadly. We want to hold people accountable. We want to impose, if you will, a feeling of change. If we wanted to move 3,000 whales and dolphins out of captivity today, we couldn't do it. There's nowhere for there aren't There isn't room yet for them. But if we get our act together, we surely can. And so we want to do that with a level of intensity. And we don't want to give ourselves a break from saying it's too slow or whatever. We want to move forward in a forthright way share the information, find people who can help fund it because money will be important. Help with fundraising, help with getting the word out to people and help kids understand that this is the way of the future and let the kids lead us forward. Let the children be our guides because they understand it intrinsically from the moments they're born. <laughs> Wow, Matt, that was a fantastic podcast, wasn't it? It was amazing. It was amazing. It really was. Although, you know what? I, I have to say, mate, you keep bringing up this whole euthanasia of... Do you remember this? I can't believe you even have it ready to share. It's just... Twice now. Twice now. You have brought up 
the euthanasia. I'm not even getting paid for these royalties, you know. This could be going out somewhere and making money for me, but I'm not even getting paid. Why are you so obsessed with killing killer whales? <laughs> just a sport. It's culture, Harry. I just want to keep doing it. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. Like I say, it's such a... I love having these conversations with people like Laurie and Charles because I think it's almost our duty to ask these questions. What I love about Charles and Laurie is that they just gave such good answers, answers that were so clear and that people could resonate with. Yes, uh, yes. And I'm so proud to be part of that project. It's such an inspiring project and definitely go and check it out, everyone. Absolutely. All of the Whale Sanctuary and related links will be available as always in the description of the podcast and i think it's really interesting with the captivity issue in terms of you know the release of keiko what i loved about charles is that how he talks about how he improved the welfare of keiko for that short time that he was able to make choices to decide where he wanted to go what he wanted to interact with all those sort of decisions that keiko could have compared to the awful conditions and he was in awful conditions yeah even though the movie made millions of dollars and what charles did was inspirational i think and yeah. you know they never gave up and I, and i personally find it a story that we should be proud of as a movement because it shows that actually with the well sanctuary project and other initiatives we can provide a greater quality of life for these incredible animals that we have almost taken advantage of for our own entertainment yeah. for so many years so yeah really profound and really important message that charles shared with everyone couldn't agree more wow what was up with me then I, I really went into that was really deep wasn't it to be honest i really wasn't paying much attention <laughs> I drifted off a little bit towards the end there. Uh, I mean, I've heard it all before, mate. I mean, you said a lot of great stuff, but to be honest, Charles said it better. But nevertheless. <laughs> That's why he gets big, big books and, and uh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so for anyone that's still listening to this podcast and managed yeah, to stick through uh, through Matt's little monologue there, um, yeah. who have we got on next week's podcast, Matt? Well, Harry, you know how excited I am about who we have next week. You when are giddy as a schoolboy. When Harry and I talked about who we could have guests, and Harry and I said this a lot, but there were two people I wanted. One was Tim Harrison, and we got him in episode two. The other one was Amy Dickman. Amy Dickman has done more to shape my views on conservation and wildlife and animal welfare than anyone else. I believe we used the word fangasm to describe I knew you could use that word. My mum and auntie listened to this, and you've just said the word fangasm. And so did you, but I think it's... Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's a fair description of the level of excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation that you had towards this podcast. It was... Yeah, I can't explain how excited I was. Amy Dickman is an absolute inspiration to me. She is, imagine to anyone listening, you could have a conversation with anyone in a subject that you are passionate about. Amy Dickman was my number one. And she gave us the time out of her incredibly busy schedule to talk to a pair of idiots like you and I, Harry. And it was a wonderful hour and a half for me. And Amy Dickman has done so much to improve the lives of not only lions in Tanzania, but also communities. And that's at the heart of everything that you and I believe in. I, I still now cannot believe we recorded the podcast and I cannot wait for it to go out. It's going to be so exciting. It was a really, really great podcast. And she was such a wonderfully interesting and funny and really delightful funny. Wow. person to speak to. She really was. Yeah. It was a really, really lovely conversation. So that's one to definitely look forward to mm. next week. But between now and then, Matt, what do we want people to do? Well, first of all, Harry, we want them to, like we said earlier on, 
We're going to put all the links for the Whale Sanctuary project, but just to mention one more time, Charles Vinick and Laurie Marino, who appeared in episode five, are offering free Q&As to go along with the feature short film that the Whale Sanctuary Project has released called Whales Without Walls. You can find it on their website, whalesanctuaryproject.org. And Laurie and Charles are offering to give you a free bloody Q&A afterwards. So take advantage of it, people. Take Go on their website, get in touch with them. We'll put the links in this podcast. It's your chance to speak to these two incredibly inspiring people. But Harry, all they need to do is first of all, go on our social media pages, Animal Chat Podcasts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Get in touch with us, follow us, subscribe, review, and share the podcasts with as many people as you can. The reason why Harry and I want to do this podcast And the reason why we decided to do it together is because we love listening to people's journeys and how they inspire us in the work that we do. And I firmly believe that the more we can get that out there, the more these people can be recognized and the more people can recognize the incredible work they're doing. Just listen, enjoy, like, review and share. Just get these stories out there because these are just wonderfully interesting, inspirational, entertaining people. And Matt and myself. And so just share share the podcast. If you're enjoying it, then share it with other people. So until next week, have a great week, everyone. And thank you again for listening. Enjoy it, everyone. Speak to you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.